Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. All right, our scripture reading will be from Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn there, starting in verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible." Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Father, I'd ask that over these next few minutes that you would just speak to us through your word. Help me to make plain the teaching of your word in this passage. I pray that you would um, bring encouragement, bring conviction where necessary, and help us all to be changed as a result of encountering your word this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you were with us last week or you saw the video online, you know that um, we looked at a similar birth announcement last week in John the Baptist, where Gabriel comes to Elizabeth, or to Zechariah rather, in the temple, uh, and tells him that he's going to give birth to a son named John, and he gives a description that uh, is similar but also different from the one of Jesus. He tells him that he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord, uh, and he tells him that he's going to bring about a national revival in Israel, and that uh, John would be a special prophet of the Lord's. And this week, we're looking at the birth announcement of Jesus Christ, which is parallel. It, there's very a lot of similarities between the two texts, but this account is even more spectacular than that one. John the Baptist's miraculous birth to elderly parents was certainly incredible, but that's nothing compared to a birth to a virgin. The greatness of John the Baptist, as mentioned by Gabriel, pales in comparison to the even greater greatness of Jesus, the Son of God. And so, The account that we're looking on today, it builds on the previous passage, but it also points to the supremacy of Christ, even over John the Baptist, the greatest born among women. Jesus is even greater. And so today we'll be looking at that announcement, starting in verse 26. Our text begins in verse 26, where Luke says that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And you'll notice Gabriel comes again as the messenger from God. It says he was sent from God. And he sent to a town called Nazareth. Nazareth was, and still to this day, is a very small, insignificant town. It's right basically in the middle of uh, Upper Galilee in the, hill, in the hill country in between the Sea of Galilee, which is about 15 miles to the east, and then to the west you have the, the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 20 miles, so it's literally right in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the hills. And if you want to get a sense of what people of Jesus' day thought about Nazareth, listen to what Nathaniel says in John 1.46, he says, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? So apparently Nazareth has this reputation of just being this insignificant town that you know nobody great is going to come from Nazareth. That's why Nathaniel is so shocked that Jesus is from there. You'll notice that uh, Luke gives the description in verse 26 of Nazareth being a city of Galilee, and there's, there's no Greek word for town, so he's not saying here that it's some big metropolis. It's a tiny town. Uh, but polis is the word there. It, it just it doesn't imply a large city. It's just a, a town of a few thousand people at the time. And also Luke has to explain that Nazareth 
is in Galilee because likely Theophilus had never heard of it. It was just an insignificant town in the middle of nowhere. And he comes in verse 27 to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph. So this angel appears to this young girl in the middle of Nazareth named Mary. And Mary was likely very young. Uh, Normally espoused girls at this time were between 12 and 15 years old, which sounds weird to us, but that's just how it was. And so Mary most likely was around 13 years old when this takes place. And it, it mentions that she was espoused to Joseph or betrothed. And the closest comparison that we have today is engagement, though it's not quite the same. Uh, a, a betrothal in, in Judaism was legally binding. So in order to break that engagement, you had to actually get a divorce. So this, this was, they were sort of married, but not fully married. And this normally lasted for about a year, uh, where the woman would remain with her parents during this betrothal period, but she was referred to as the wife. Like you'll, you'll see even in the Bible where Joseph and Mary are considered husband and wife, even though the marriage was not consummated yet. And so Luke mentions that specifically that Mary was a virgin, and it is of utmost importance to establish the fact that Mary was indeed a virgin. Because if she wasn't, then Jesus wasn't truly God. And we'll get into that a little bit later, but... In order for Jesus to be unique and different than any other human, we have to establish the fact that he was indeed born of a virgin. Larry King, the famous interviewer, was once asked if he could interview anybody in the world who he would choose, and he said, Jesus Christ. And they asked him, if you could only ask one question, what would you ask? And he said, I would ask him if he was indeed virgin-born, because the answer to that question would define history. So the virgin birth is the channel through which the second person of the Trinity enters history as a human being. Jesus is only truly God and truly man if he was born of a virgin. And our text would remind Mary, perhaps, of Isaiah 7.14, this prediction that this would happen. It says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Isaiah here is even saying that when a virgin gives birth to this son, That is the Son of God. That's how God's going to enter humanity. And now hundreds of years later, we have the prophecy being fulfilled in Luke chapter 1. So verse 28 records Gabriel's greeting to Mary. He says, greetings, one who has been favored by God. Literally, it's it's the word charis in Greek. One who's been graced by God. Mary was the recipient of God's grace. So it's, it, it, this is an important point also, because if, if you read this in the Latin Vulgate, they actually mistranslate this terribly uh, in Roman Catholicism to say, Hail Mary, full of grace. Maybe you've heard of that before. As though there was something in Mary that caused her to, to earn God's favor. That's exactly the opposite of what the word grace means. Grace is undeserved favor from God. So the angel is saying, specifically because you're not worthy of this honor, God has chosen you out of his goodness and out of his grace. Nothing that Mary did, nothing that Mary wasn't a perfect person or anything. She was just the recipient of God's undeserved grace and favor. So the focus is not on Mary and her greatness, but on God choosing to bestow this honor on her. And you notice in verse 29, she, she doesn't consider herself worthy of this honor. She says, uh, says she's troubled at this saying and cast in her mind what manner of a salutation this should be. And cast in her mind, that's just an old English way of, of saying she's confused. She's trying to figure this out. Like she's pondering. You know, it, it kind of makes sense if you, if you read it. Like she's, it's bouncing around in her head. Like what is this guy saying? What do you mean, hail thou highly favored one of God? What are you talking about? She doesn't consider herself uh, to be anything special. She's from an insignificant town. She's just a teenage girl. Why would an angel greet her this way? And the angel continues by saying, uh, answering that that object or that that confusion by saying, "Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God." So, verse thirty. This is the typical phrase we talked about this last week that angels give to humans. Anytime an angel appears to a human, most of the time, very quickly they say, "Don't be afraid," because humans are naturally scared of angels. Uh, and so he tells them, "Don't be afraid," and he gives the reason because you have found favor with God. Again, it's the Greek word grace. Verse thirty-one, and and you will conceive in your womb and. Bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. So Mary's told that she's going to give birth to a son. She's to call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. It's the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament, Yeshua. And the angel goes on to describe this son in verse 32 as being great. It says he'll be great. He'll be the son of the highest. And 
the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. In other words, Mary is being told that her child would be the fulfillment of God's promise to David of an eternal dynasty. She's going to give birth to a king. Not just any king, but the very Son of God himself. And this promise of sitting on the throne of David forever refers back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God appears to King David and he says to him, I will set up thy seed after thee. Uh, Sorry, when the days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy father. So after you die, I'm going to set up your seed after thee, He shall, uh, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, that's speaking of Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Solomon fulfills part of that prophecy, but obviously not all of it. Solomon's not still alive reigning in Israel. So this promise is first uh, enunciated here, and then it's repeated many times throughout the Old Testament. If you read the Psalms, there's over and over this promise that there's coming a king, and this king would come from the line of David, and he would uh, reign forever. And Gabriel is telling Mary, now your son that you're going to have is that king. And I want us to, for a few minutes, just consider the ramifications of having this eternal kingdom. Because I think a lot of times we think of Jesus as king, we think, oh, that's great, without actually thinking about what that means. Because in America, we don't like kings. We don't like monarchies, right? We like democracy. We like a representative democracy, but still a government of the people where we have say-so and we get to vote. And uh, we don't just... We don't, we don't want, want one person that makes all the decisions for the rest of us because we understand that humans are sinful and uh, vesting that sort of authority and power in one human being is a very dangerous thing. And throughout history, that's been proven. And so how can we understand this? I think um, as Americans, we need to think about what it means for Jesus to be a kingdom. So th- the first thing I want to say is what is it about kings that we hate so much? What is it that scares us about having a king? And I think there's, there's two reasons that monarchies don't work out very well in our world. Number one is, I mentioned earlier, that human beings are sinful. And so it's been said absolute power corrupts absolutely. Whenever you give somebody that much control without checks and balances, without accountability, it ends up going very bad many times. And so we don't like kings and queens, somebody having a total sovereignty over us because human beings are fallen and sinful. And even in our presidential elections, I mean, can you imagine, whatever you think of Donald Trump or of Barack Obama or whoever, you don't want him in charge forever with absolute power that's unchecked. Even if you like the guy, that's dangerous. Like, that's scary. Because we understand that humans are corrupt at our nature. We're sinful beings. I think it's interesting that every every four years, at least during my lifetime, every, I guess, eight years, every time that um, we have a switch of presidents, it's like a a pendulum swing that's unbelievable. I mean, think about in my lifetime, starts out with Clinton and then Bush and then an even wider swing, Obama and then Trump. Like talk about two people that are totally different from each other, totally different philosophies. And that just shows us that a lot of Americans, by the end of an eight-year term, they're frustrated with their king, with their president. They, They think we want the opposite of this guy. And then eight years later, when they've had the opposite, they go back the other direction. Humans make for really bad kings because we're sinners. And so if we're going to have a king with a kingdom that works, we need a good king. We need a holy king, a king that's not tainted with sin. There's another reason kingdoms don't work out very well on earth, and that's because throughout history we have had occasionally good kings. We've had some good queens, some good kings that, that had uh, that dangerous amount of power, and they did rule well. But there's still a problem. And I want to illustrate this by... Considering King Edward of England, he reigned uh, just for a few years. Edward was the son of Henry VIII. You've probably heard of him. He's the one who cut England off from Roman Catholicism. He wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, and so uh, the Pope said, no, you're not allowed to do that. And uh, Henry didn't like that. He, he was married multiple times afterwards, so he was not exactly a moral man. But he wanted to get this divorce, and so he decides that instead of listening to the Pope of the Catholic Church, he's just going to break England off. We're going to be our own church, and I'm going to be the Pope. And so he appoints himself as Pope of what would become the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And so his theology is very much so Roman Catholic. Henry VIII was not a Protestant. He hated Martin Luther. He wrote a defense of the seven sacraments. He was a staunch Roman Catholic theologically. He just didn't like the Pope telling him what to do. And so he broke off, but 
the Anglican Church, the Church of England was still uh, very Roman Catholic in their theology. But the, the Reformation was taking place at the same time in England and all over Europe where uh, people were realizing, a lot of it through the Bible finally being translated in the languages of, of the people, uh, that the theology of the Roman Catholic Church was heretical, that there were serious errors that were being propagated during those years. And so people were beginning to realize that the Bible didn't teach things like indulgences and uh, celibacy and the Mass the way that the Catholics understand it. And so they were breaking away from Roman Catholicism. And it, the Reformation, the Protestant movement, was spreading like wildfire throughout Europe. And then Henry dies. And his son, Edward, takes the throne February 20th, 1547. He ascends to the throne at the age of nine. King Edward, the boy king as he's known, he starts reigning at the age of nine. And he's, he was raised as a Protestant, and he had, um, you know, as a nine-year-old king, you're not exactly making all the decisions. He had basically advisors that helped him. Thomas Cramwell, uh, who authored the Book of Common Prayer, uh, he was one of, one of his closest advisors. And so the Protestants in England were thrilled at the, the prospect of having Edward as their king because we, we finally got a Protestant king, they're thinking. Now we'll get these changes and we'll break further away from Roman Catholicism. And that began to happen. Edward made changes to the church and made it into more of a recognizably uh, Protestant church. He got rid of the celibacy of the priesthood. He got rid of the mass. And he started making changes to reflect biblical teaching. And so the Protestants were thrilled at this. They're excited. There's just one little problem. In February of 1553, at the age of 15, after reigning for only six years, Edward gets sick and he drops dead at 15 years old. So this king that seemed like a, a godsend for the Protestants, we got this perfect king. He's doing all the things that we want him to do. And six years into his reign, he dies. So humans don't make for very good kings, number one, because they're sinful, and number two, because we die. Even when you get a good king, it's not going to last forever. He's going to die, and he's going to leave his throne to somebody else. And so what we need, if we're going to have a monarchy that works, we need a good king, a perfect king, a king with wisdom who makes all the right decisions, who rules with love, and who doesn't die and leave his throne to somebody else who's just going to mess it all up. By the way, who inherits the throne after Edward? His sister Mary known as Bloody Mary, the one who, who slaughtered Protestants, burned them to the stake, and reversed all of the changes that Edward had made. So that just shows you, we, a good king, that's nice, but it's, it's always temporary. We need an eternal king that is good. And so Gabriel says to Mary, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Jesus is the ideal king. He's the only king that we can trust will rule with wisdom and perfect justice. He's the only king that we know won't ever die and be replaced by a bad king. Jesus is our forever perfect king. That's what Gabriel's telling Mary. Now maybe you're thinking, you know, I know a little bit about the life of Jesus. I know he was born in Bethlehem, and then he grew up as a carpenter, and then he taught for a couple of years, and then he died on the cross and went to heaven. But I don't remember him being a king. If you ever wondered that, when does this prophecy get fulfilled? Because it says he's coming to reign, and his kingdom's going to last forever, but when did Jesus become a king? I want us to, to uh, look at this a little bit. It's important for us to understand the concept of the kingdom of God, as it's called, it's all throughout the book of Luke. And that's one of the reasons I'm taking this time to, to drill this in, because it's a key theme in the book of Luke. Jesus teaches over and over again that he is ushering in the kingdom of God. In fact, he says that's the reason he came to earth. We'll look at Luke 4.43. Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. The reason that I came was to preach the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Matthew 9.35 says, Jesus went about in all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Mark, uh, Matthew 10.7 says that, it's talking about when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and says, I want you guys to go out and preach the message to other cities in Israel. He says, as you go preaching, say, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the arrival of the kingdom of God this was the message of Jesus Christ, that God's kingdom was coming to earth. Luke 11, Jesus says he's casting out demons by the power of God, and that's proof of the fact 
that the kingdom of God has arrived. So according to Jesus, the kingdom of God arrived when he came to earth. He was a king. And the question is, what does that mean? Because obviously Jesus wasn't a king in the sense that we think of. He didn't have a country that he reigned over. Pilate was confused by this. In John 18, he asked Jesus, Pilate entered the the judgment hall again and called Jesus, said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And listen to Jesus' answer, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight and I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, now is my kingdom not from hence. So Jesus is saying, I am a king, but I'm not a king over an earthly kingdom. If I were a king over a country, he's saying, I would send my people to come fight and I wouldn't be dying on this cross. But he says, I am a king. Verse 37, Pilate's still confused. He says, art thou a king then? Jesus answered, thou sayest that I am a king. And notice this, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world, I'm not a king over a country, but instead he reigns as king over them that are of the truth. That's why he came into the world, to die on the cross and to become the king of all who would repent and trust him as their Lord and Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian means you're accepting a new king. You're choosing to become a citizen of Jesus' kingdom where you don't get a vote. It's not a democracy. We're choosing to follow Jesus Christ, and he has absolute sovereignty and absolute authority to tell us whatever he wants us to do. So when when you come to Christ for salvation, you're giving up your right to vote. You're, You're giving up your right to make your own decisions and live life however you want. I gave up my autonomy when I decided to submit myself to the authority of King Jesus. To be a Christian, then, is to be a subject in Jesus' kingdom. And that's the kingdom of God. Luke 17 says it uh, very clearly. It says, when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. So Pharisees come to Jesus and they're asking him, they're pressing him, when is the kingdom of God coming? He answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. So you can't see it. Verse 21, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom of God is not something you see. If you're looking for Jesus to overthrow uh, the Roman Empire and establish his earthly kingdom, you're missing the point. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is the king. And when you submit to him in repentance and faith, you become one of his subjects. You become a part of that kingdom. And that's what it means to be a Christian. doesn't mean you go to church. It doesn't mean you pray to prayer once doesn't mean even that you just believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Being a part of the kingdom of God is submitting to Jesus as your king and letting him reign and rule over your heart. Jesus' first sermon in the book of Mark says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So repentance and faith, that's how we gain entrance into this kingdom. That's how we become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And this is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus isn't just here to save you from hell someday. No, the good news is that Jesus was the kingdom of God. It was here. And you can be a a part of this kingdom if you'll believe the gospel and repent of sin, turning in submission to King Jesus. This is what Philip preached in Acts chapter 8. It says, When they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So at the heart of the gospel message is this concept of the kingdom of God, that Jesus is king. And we are to submit to him as our authority. Uh, Colossians 1.13, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. When you become a Christian, you gain citizenship to the kingdom of God where Jesus reigns over your heart. And so if Jesus is not your king, then you're not a Christian. If you've not given that control of your life to Christ, you're not a part of the kingdom of God. To be a part of Jesus' kingdom is to submit to his rule. And this is, this is the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, all authority is the word, is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is king, and he's been given this authority to rule, in light of that, go make disciples. Go recruit citizens to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus. And you do that in verse 20 by teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you all way even unto the end of the world. You see, being a part of Jesus' kingdom and being one of his subjects means doing what he commands you to do. So what else does that, what else does it mean for Jesus to be the king of your heart except that 
he has authority to tell me how I am to live my life. So the question that I think all of us need to be asking is, are we trying to control our own life or have we bowed the knee to our sovereign King Jesus? There's a couple more things we need to say about the kingdom of God because that explanation that I just gave you won't fit in every passage. You'll come across some passages and you'll think, wait a second, that doesn't seem to jive. And I'll try to explain that. Acts 14.22 is one example of this where it says, confirming the souls of disciples. He's talking about what Paul was doing as he was traveling around. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. So there you see Paul is traveling around Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and he's telling the Christians there that you're going to suffer a lot before you enter the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God apparently is a future reality that they're not yet in. So you might be thinking, wait a minute, you just said that the kingdom of God's already here. Jesus brought in the kingdom. And when we let him rule and reign over us, we're a part of that kingdom. Yes, but we're experiencing only a part of the kingdom of God. There is yet a fuller arrival of the kingdom that's coming in the future. Jesus said in Luke 21, So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, talking about some future events, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. So clearly Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He says that earlier in Luke. And then he says, it's, it's in the future. And here are some signs that, that it's coming. So it's at hand, it's arrived, and it's coming in the future. There are present and future aspects to the kingdom of God. And I think Revelation really clears this up. Uh, in Revelation eleven fifteen. It says the seventh angel sounded, there was great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So there's coming a day when Jesus won't just be king over a few Christian hearts, but he'll be king over the world and it will be a visible kingdom. He'll actually be reigning from Jerusalem, seated on the throne, ruling over our earth. And that's when the kingdom of God reaches its consummation. So right now we have this partial kingdom where you and I, as we submit to Christ and as we allow him to be king over our lives, we're a part of the kingdom of God. But we have the hope that someday in the future, Jesus is actually going to physically return back to this earth and he's going to set up a kingdom here on this planet where he's going to rule over the kingdoms of the world. This is again, Revelation 12.10. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. And the power of his Christ for the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So again, there's coming a day when the kingdom of God, Jesus will return and establish that kingdom, the kingdom that exists right now within us as we are uh, subject to our king, that will become visible as he reigns here on earth and over his children. Jesus is our perfect eternal king. And Gabriel is telling this little 13-year-old girl, you're going to have a son and he's going to be a king. Can you imagine the shock that goes through this girl's mind. Not only the fact that she's a virgin and she's going to have a son, but this little girl from this insignificant town, Nazareth, is going to give birth to a king. Listen to how she responds in verse 34. It says, Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? She raises the obvious question. I'm a virgin. How in the world is this going to happen? And this is not like Zacharias' unbelief. Uh, This is something that I was asked recently before preaching this text. Somebody asked me, How is Zachariah punished for not believing the angel when he says, you know, you old people are going to give birth to a son. Well, that's kind of a hard one to swallow. Uh, and that Mary similarly asks a question and seems to be doubting this. And so how come she's not punished? You know, it seems like maybe the angel's being a little harsh on Zachariah here. But I think there's some differences. First of all, Zacharias was told that he would have a son and he asked for a sign from the angel so that he would know that the angel was telling the truth. He said, how shall I know that this is going to happen? Mary says, how shall this be? So Mary seems to believe that this is going to happen. She's just wondering how in the world is it going to happen? Whereas Zechariah completely dismisses the fact that it's even possible and says, I need more evidence before I'm going to accept this. And maybe another, another uh, strike against Zechariah is that there are examples in the Old Testament that he would have been familiar of, of Abraham and Sarah, for instance. Abraham's 100 years old when he has his son Isaac. So there are those miracle births to elderly people uh, in the Old Testament examples that Zechariah would have been familiar with. But Mary's is a completely new thing. I mean, this has never happened. And, and she's obviously, and, and it's, uh, we would be just as thrown off by this. There's no precedent for this, in other words. This is a totally unique miracle. And it's incomprehensible to her. And so she, she asks, how am I going to have this son since I'm a virgin? And listen to Gabriel's response in verse 35. It says, the angel 
answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So follow the argument here. Gabriel says, because you're a virgin and the Holy Spirit will implant in you the child Jesus, therefore Jesus will be holy and he'll be recognized as the Son of God. So there's, this is the result of the virgin birth. This is why the virgin birth is an essential Christian doctrine. It's not mentioned very much in the Bible, but it's something where churches divide over. We, this is in our, our statement of faith that you can't be a member of our church if you deny the virgin birth. I wouldn't associate with other pastors or churches that deny the virgin birth. It's crucial to what we believe because it gets right to the core of who Jesus was. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, as Larry King recognized, if he wasn't born of a virgin, then this is all a sham. He's not truly God. The only way that God can enter uh, human flesh is if he's not like normal human beings. And so the virgin birth is an essential Christian doctrine because it's the foundation of the deity of Christ. And without the virgin birth... Gabriel is saying the doctrine of Christ's deity would fall apart. So because the Holy Spirit's going to implant this child in Mary, therefore, and that's the key word in that sentence, therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Gabriel, after giving this sort of explanation, I mean, I'm sure Mary still had some questions. That's not a real complete explanation, but he gives her some more evidence of this. He says in verse 36, Behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she also hath conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for with God nothing shall be impossible. So he points to Mary's relative, Elizabeth, who she would have known was barren all her life and was elderly, and he says, she's become pregnant. And by the way, remember, she hid herself for five months. Mary probably didn't know this. It's probably news to her uh, that her relative had become pregnant as an old lady. And he says, she's six months pregnant now. And this is, uh, this is supposed to be proof to her, hey, God did this for her, and so therefore, you should trust that God's doing the same thing for you. And in the next story, we'll look at this next week, Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. I think she's trying to validate this, like, is this really legit? And when she sees that she's pregnant, uh, I think that gives confidence to Mary that, okay, this is, this is for real, this is going to happen. And notice what Gabriel points to as the implication of the fact that Elizabeth is barren. It says, for nothing uh, with God, nothing shall be impossible. See, God can do anything. If God can cause this elderly barren woman to give birth, then he can cause you to give birth even though you're a virgin. So look at Mary's response in verse 38. After this shocking news and partial explanation, Mary's response is, behold, the slave of the Lord. That's literally the word doulos in Greek, slave of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. She sees herself as God's slave, as belonging to the Lord, Curios, the master. This is slave and master terminology. She sees herself as belonging to God in total subjection to him. And so her statement shows the submission that she has to the will of God. Whatever Mary or whatever God says, Mary understands her place is to do whatever he says, to accept his will for her life. She's she was a subject, in other words, to the king. She would submit to whatever her king's wish was for her. And by the way, we think of this as a great blessing, and it certainly was. I mean, can you imagine being the, the mother to the son of God? That's awesome. However, this was also difficult because she's a 13-year-old girl, and nobody's going to believe that the Holy Spirit implanted this child. So when they see her pregnant, knowing she's not fully married, she's only engaged, what are people going to think? She's, she's going to lose her reputation at least for a while. And also, notice Gabriel doesn't say that he's going to go tell Joseph. Now, he does. We know in Matthew, he goes and tells Joseph. But presumably, if you're married, you're probably thinking, my husband's going to divorce me. Like, he's not going to marry. He's going to think that I was unfaithful to him. And so Mary is, there's still a lot of questions here in her mind, no doubt. And yet, she submits to the will of God. She says, I'm the slave of the Lord. Behold your slave. Do to me whatever's right. Whatever you want, I'm yours. This is submission to the king. Many people think that they're going to experience the eternal reign of Jesus on earth. They think they're going to be part of that eternal kingdom where he reigns forever, but instead they're going to be cast into hell. This is what Matthew 7 says. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. You will not be granted access to the eternal kingdom if you've not been subject to him while you're here on earth. And so the question for all of us is, does that describe you? Are you like Mary, who's subject to the will of the king? Does Jesus have control over your life, or are you not a part of his kingdom? 
I want us to turn to one passage, if you have your Bible, to uh, Luke 18. I want us to look at this story. I think this is a good illustration, a good example of what we're talking about. Luke 18, starting in verse 18. A certain ruler comes to Jesus and he says to him in Luke 18, 18, he says, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw that he was sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through uh, the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought about what those words mean? That should be convicting to every American in this room. Just to at least think about I'm not saying go sell everything you have. I don't think that's the point. But that should convict us a little bit. That it's very difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. That's what, God, that's what Jesus said. It's difficult. Now, he goes on later in the, in the text to say, with God, it's not impossible. So there are some exceptions to this. But as the richest people in the history of the world, I think we should consider that it, apparently it's harder for those who have riches and who have things to submit to the king to truly be willing, and I think that's the point here. It's not that all of us are called to go and sell everything we have and give it away. That's, I don't think that's the point. The point is we ought to be willing to. And, and obviously this rich young ruler was not. And Jesus says because he was not willing to give up the things that were most precious to him in submission to the king, he's not entering the kingdom of God. I think a good analogy to this is the story of Abraham in the Old Testament where Abraham's unthinkably asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. He's asked to kill him. And again, I don't think the point is that we all need to go kill our children. The point was, Abraham loved this son, and God wanted to know, do you love him more than me? Or are you willing to give him up for me? So it's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Are we truly submitted to our king? Does he have sovereign rule and reign over our hearts, or are we still holding on to something? This rich man's still holding on to his wealth. He's willing to give up other things. He's willing to keep those commandments, but not that, don't touch my money. And that's where a lot of us are. There's, there's certain aspects of our lives that, yeah, we'll go to church and, and we'll do these little things, but don't touch this part. Don't touch this sin. Or don't ask me to give up this, uh, this part of my life. Don't, don't take total control of my life. Don't be my king. I still want to vote. Right? I, I still want to have a little bit of a say, so I still want some represent, no taxation without representation, right? Like, we still want to have a little bit of a voice. And God says, no, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to trust that your king knows what's best for you, and you've got to let him have absolute authority to rule over your heart. And whatever he says, whatever, when he says to you, sell everything you have and give it away, the only proper response is, yes, King Jesus. That's what it means for him to be a king. You can't say, he's my king, and then not do what he says. He's just your consultant, if that's, if that's our view. He's just our advisor, if all we're doing is asking his opinion and then considering whether or not we want to do what he says. If he's your king, truly, then he has total authority to rule over your life so that you don't control you anymore. You're living under his control, and what his command is is what you do. So Jesus isn't saying here that rich people can't be saved. Again, later in the passage, he says, with God, it's, it's possible for a rich man's heart to be changed such that they're willing to submit to the King Jesus, but that's rare. It's hard, and that's understandable. It is hard. It, people that don't have much to give up, and this is seen throughout church history, people that don't have much to give up are a lot more willing to follow Christ, whereas those of us who have possessions and have things and have those blessings, it's hard for us to truly give up everything and say, I'm yours, I'm your slave, like Mary said. That's an uncomfortable thing for those of us who who have been blessed by God, and Jesus says that if, if you think that you have the right to do whatever you want with your possessions, you're not part of his kingdom. Submission to Christ and allowing him to rule in our life is what it means to be a Christian. And whatever it is in your life that you're unwilling to submit to his control, that will be the thing that takes you to hell. I know it's a harsh statement, but we're going to get into some statements of Jesus that I think are actually harsher. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 6, and the first thing I want to point out is that if you're living in continuous sin, rebelling against the commandments of God's Word, don't be deceived into thinking you're a Christian. This is all throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6 says, 
Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11 is one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the power, uh, by the Spirit of our God. So Jesus says, or Paul says to this church, there are some of you that used to be in that lifestyle. Such were some of you. And the key word there is were. If you still are, then you fall under the condemnation that he gives in verse 10. You're not inheriting the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, he says. Don't think you're a Christian while you're living in these patterns of sin. But but he gives us hope in verse 11 that even if we are stuck in that sin and we're, we're captive and enslaved to sin, we can be freed from that. So these people used to live in continual sin. They were a slave to sin. Romans 6 says this, that all of us, prior to our salvation, were slaves to sin. There's no such thing as being free, by the way. Some some people have a hard time with the concept of being God's slave. And I understand that a little bit. Some of that is because of, you know, American history, I think, has tainted our view of slavery. Uh, Even worse, you know, in, in ways of like racial slavery. That's really not the point. This is more of slavery in the Old Testament was actually uh voluntary. So... If I owed you a bunch of money and I couldn't afford to pay you back, I would submit myself as your slave for a certain number of years to pay off my debt. That's, that was a common thing. And so it wasn't you know, one group of people hating another race and enslaving. That's not the point. The point is willingly submitting to someone and giving them control of your life. And so Romans 6 says that no one is truly freed. The natural person is a slave to sin. Uh, you, you're, a, you're a slave to your, your flesh and your desires. And then when you become a Christian... According to Romans 6, you transfer from being a slave to sin that leads to death, and now you're a slave to Christ that leads to eternal life. So there's a, 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 a switching of masters there. You're still a slave. You're not totally free to just live however you want. And if you've not experienced that transformation, 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't think for a second you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, verse 19 says, the, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.5 says, for this ye know that no whoremonger, no unclean person, nor, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You are not a citizen of Christ's kingdom if you're living in ongoing sin. And Christians all over America have been dead wrong about this for a long time because we've taught a doctrine known as eternal security, which is true if you understand it properly. If by eternal security you mean you can't lose your salvation, that is accurate. If by eternal security you mean I can live however I want and I'm still going to go to heaven, there's a million verses in the New Testament that teach the exact opposite of that. So don't, don't rest on the concept of eternal security to think I can live in sin and still make it into the kingdom, to, still slip in there barely. No, that's a distortion of the doctrine of eternal security. and it's, it's led many people to have an indifferent view toward their sin. People think that they're saved and they can't lose their salvation, so therefore we can go on sinning without fear of punishment or at least not fear of eternal punishment. And maybe as I've talked these last few minutes, you think I'm going overboard. You think I, I need to back off. I'm being a little too harsh. Let me, let me show you Mark 9. This is what Jesus said about how seriously we ought to take sin. It says, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life, that's eternal life, the kingdom of God, maimed, without an arm, than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. Verse 45, if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. And the word offend there, it means if it, if it causes you to stumble, if your foot is causing you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better for you to enter into uh, enter halt uh, into life crippled uh, than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. 
I knew that passage from the time I was a child. I had that, I basically had it memorized. I grew up hearing it over and over again. And I didn't know what it meant until I was in college. I didn't pay attention to it. Where Jesus says, I don't know why in the world I was so familiar with it, but it didn't strike me. That Jesus says, you should take your sin so seriously, you rip your eye out of your head in order to avoid eternal fire. And I had in my own theology, in my understanding of salvation, the concept that I could live jolly well however I wanted to because I prayed a prayer. And so I was safe. And, and Jesus says, you think you're safe living in sin? If you don't rip, rip that thing that's causing you to sin out, you're going to be cast into hell. That struck me in college when I, I realized that Jesus' theology of salvation was very different than my own. And I mean, how else could you possibly interpret that? Is there any way around the statement of Jesus? How can you possibly think that we can live in continual sin and simply because we prayed a prayer or we, uh, we, we started coming to church or whatever the case may be, whatever it, you got baptized, whatever it is that you're leaning on for salvation, you, you don't lose your salvation by sinning. You simply give evidence to the fact that you were never truly a Christian. And by the way, we do need to point this out that these statements are not saying you're going to be perfect as a Christian. I do need to, to hesitate and say that because there, there's aspects of all of our lives that are going to be weaknesses and sins, sin patterns for the rest of our life. That's a reality. Uh, and Romans teaches us as well that you've got dual natures. You've got your saved nature that pushes you to do right and convicts you when you sin, and then you've got your other flesh that's still there, that indwelling sin that, uh, that causes you to have that proclivity toward doing wrong. So this isn't saying you're going to be perfect, but the direction of your life should not be continual sin. If you have a pattern of sinful habits in your life, that should concern you very much. You shouldn't rest in some past memory for the fact that you're a Christian. So eternal security only applies if you've been genuinely saved in the first place. So again, you don't lose your salvation by sinning. But a crucial aspect of saving faith is submission to Christ as your king. Jesus is king. Gabriel told Mary that her son would be the everlasting king, and Jesus spent his life preaching everywhere that he went that the kingdom of God had arrived and that by faith and repentance we can become citizens of this kingdom. And there's coming a day when this kingdom will be made visible here on earth where Jesus will reign over all of humanity. But for now, this kingdom exists in the hearts of all who are his subjects. And the offer is extended to all. Everybody can have entrance into the kingdom if you'll submit to King Jesus. Let him rule and reign over your life. By the way, being a citizen of the kingdom of God is a glorious privilege. Luke 16 says, No servant... And again, doulos, slave, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And so this, this sermon has been maybe more, um, I don't know, I don't know what word to use. The tone has been different than my typical sermon because this is a serious matter and I want us to take this seriously. However, I don't want us to have the view that being a slave to God or being uh, a subject to our king is a bad thing. No, just like Luke 16 says, again, Romans 6 gives us the principle that everybody's a slave to something. But being a slave to Jesus Christ is the best life you can possibly have. There is no life more satisfying or more fulfilling or more enjoyable or pleasurable. This is the biblical teaching that human beings were created to be in relationship with their heavenly father. And so when we become a... Well, sin broke that, of course. We know in the Garden of Eden, sin ruptured that relationship. And there's been terrible consequences ever, ever since, the worst of which is that separation between us and God. And so being a slave to God as your master is not some terrible tragedy. We all serve some master. We either serve God, we serve sin, we serve ourselves, we serve money. There's, and there's no better master, the Bible teaches, than God. There's no more fulfilling life than one that's lived in subjection to King Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says just a few verses later in that passage, Luke 16. He says, The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. This word presseth, it's talking about a, a zeal. It's actually, if you look it up in a lexicon, it's like a violent... Uh, the best illustration I can think of is um, Black Friday, right? When everybody's shoving each other out of the way to get through those doors and get you know a flat screen TV or whatever. That type of zeal is what Jesus is talking about. He was traveling around preaching the gospel of the kingdom and droves of sinners were coming to follow him. 
You remember he's followed by thousands of people, unnumerable multitudes followed Christ. And so it's not that being a subject to King Jesus is is some bad thing. No, this is a wonderful privilege. The offer of of the kingdom of God is not a depressing thing. Like it's, it's a bummer I have to give my life up to Christ and do what he says and live to his glory. No, the Bible says that's the best life you can possibly live. Living for your own pleasures won't satisfy in the end. Whereas living for Jesus Christ will count for all of eternity. And if you understand the incredible privilege that is yours to be a citizen of the kingdom of King Jesus, you would run through that door and let nothing get in your way. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. But the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and shalt bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be? Seeing I know not a man, the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. That is a great picture of what submission to King Jesus looks like. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.